0: I'm well aware that most people at the Compass Church are a bit more sophisticated than I am. For your night out, you would enjoy the ballet or a little opera and some fine dining. Well, please enjoy your liver pate and your escargot, and I will enjoy my deep-fried Twinkie and my corn dog, because I love the county fair. I love the sights and the sounds. The rides, the music, the games, the people. All of that fun makes my heart come alive. But yes, I understand that the fair must end. We all gotta leave eventually, and it's usually walking back to the car when reality hits you. You realize that you spent way too much money, and you ate way too much food, And you've spun around on too many of those rides, and your kids are out way too late. And as reality hits, it's amazing how that joy is out the window. While you were in the fair, filled with happiness. Back in real life, it's gone. Makes you wonder, is there a way to have joy that doesn't end Is there a way to love life no matter what the circumstances? Folks, there is. God has designed life to work that way. And so we find in Philippians 4 the secret to pervading lasting joy. And so I am so excited to begin with you our new series. It's entitled The Official Guide to a Joy-Filled Life. Are you ready? Let's learn from the Lord how to love life every day of it. Anyone else out there that enjoys the county fair? Come on, there's got to be a few. All right, a few of you. Anyone else? Deep-fried Twinkies? No? Am I alone? all right. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah. Anyways, you know, at the fair, there's a game I want to tell you about. It's You've seen it before. It's traditionally called Fool the Guesser. Have you seen this game? It's it's where you volunteer to be weighed publicly. The, the employee writes down on a piece of paper what they think you weigh, and if they're wrong by more than three pounds, you win a prize. Yeah, but to to stand up on that scale. We've actually hooked this up, and so I'm going to do that now as I step on to the scale. It should register here. No, no, no. Come on, that's not right. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> step up on the scale, and, the, and everybody can see what you weigh. And then the guy... So the game its popularity puzzles me for a few reasons. One, the employee. <laughs> yeah, I want a job where I can hold a microphone and over the loudspeaker proclaim what I think people weigh. That's a dangerous job, you know? People are going to kill you, you know, with that one. And then the contestants. How bad can you want a stuffed aardvark that you're willing to step on the scale publicly? And you're hoping that they're wrong, Right? And if you think about it, the wrong both ways is not pleasant. You know, if they guess too low, essentially they're saying, "Boy, uh, you look like <laughs> you weigh a lot more <laughs> than you actually do." You know. Uh, is that the way? too low? No, that's the way around. thank you. If they guess too low, they're saying in a sense, wow, you actually weigh. Woo, we didn't see that coming. You weigh a lot more than we thought you were. If they guess too high, you know, it's the other. But either way, you're insulted. But the game is very popular. Maybe it's that embarrassment that makes it so interesting. I wonder if you would have the guts to step up on the scale to win the aardvark. Probably not. But what about this? What if we were to rewire this game? And what if technology was invented so that it would measure your joy? What if it was a joy-filled life scale? What if in the base there were some type of receptors that measured your joy vibe? And not just your joy in the moment at the fair, but your joy, how much joy you have been living with recently. If you got on the scale, what would it register? You know, I think most people live with very little joy. Most people have some good moments, not a lot. Others have more than that. They they have days that are filled with joy, but some days that aren't. There are a few, not many, who can say that my whole life is filled with a love for life, with a bounce in my step, with a glow in my eyes, with an enthusiasm and a breathe deep and laugh heartily and just say, I have learned the secret to love life. How many of you want to be a number 10. Wherever you may be these days, you know what the plan is? The plan is to pursue a growth in joy-filled living. The Apostle Paul is the writer of the book of Philippians, and he was obsessed with the goal of a joy-filled life. In fact, he just couldn't stop talking about joy. In the book of Philippians, it's not a big book, it's only four Chapters, but fourteen times he talks about rejoicing or joy. It's been called the Epistle of Joy because of Paul's obsession in pursuit of the joy-filled life. Are you in pursuit of it? It's not only biblical; it's American. Do you remember what the Declaration of Independence say? There are three rights: life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, folks. In this series we're going after it. We're going to grow to love life and find joy in it. The name of the series is called The Official Guide to the Joyful Life. And some may say that's presumptuous. You know, you think you know the official guide. I know nothing. But what I do know is that scripture is our guide for living, a book written by God, given to us to know how to live. And in this book of Philippians, which is all about joy, When you get to the end, the last of the four chapters, the fourth, Paul lays out a God-inspired pathway or proven guide. And we're going to work through it verse by verse. And we're going to learn how God wants us to grow, to be a people of great joy. And as we start, we're going to start in verse 4. We're only going to look at two verses today. Verses 4 and 5 of Philippians 4. If you didn't bring a Bible, I would encourage you to grab the Pew Bible. You can find the passage on page 1,000. This is way at the end of the Bible. 1181, 1,181. These verses are popular. You may recall them. You may already love them. I'm reading Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in The Lord always. I'll say it again: rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. What we're going to do, you say, Jeff, really? We're going to preach the whole time on those verses, folks. There's such good stuff here that it warrants our attention and focus. I want to start by describing the kind of joy Christ is offering us in this verse, all right? What what is the joy like? And the first thing I want to say is that the joy is, I like the word indestructible. I'm going to list the attributes of this joy down here. And when I say it's indestructible, what I mean by that is that nothing can stop this joy. No hardship, no loss, no... Difficulty, no pain can rob us of this joy. And you say, How do you know that? Look at the word always. <laughs> That's a big word, is it not? Always. Rejoice when? Always. This is a joy we can have always. Folks, and when Paul says this, he has not only the authority of God in his words, but he has the authority of his own example. Where is Paul when he writes the book of Philippians? He's in Rome on vacation? No, in jail. He is in chains. And yet, even in imprisonment, he is saying, you know what's incredible? Let's talk about joy. And not only the Roman jail, that at the time he's writing Philippians, years earlier when he was in the city of Philippi with these people, he was imprisoned then too. Paul was beaten bloody, locked in a jail with his buddy Silas. You know what they did in that jail? They sang songs of praise. They, re- they had a party, celebrating and rejoicing in the Lord Almighty. When Paul says, I'm telling you, this is a joy you can have always, you know, we're learning about a different kind of joy. Uh, It's a joy that we will have when the Bears beat the Packers today, right? (laughs) And in the unlikely event that the Bears lose, this is a joy we can have even then. You say, no! Well, I want to make comments on this indestructible nature of joy because some of you may be thinking to yourself, Jeff, what if your spouse dies? What what about grief? Isn't there a place for grief? I mean, we're supposed to be grinning all the time. And and here's what I would uh, tell you, that the Bible says grief is real and right. In fact, we are to weep with those who weep, Jesus said. And so biblical spirit-led sorrow is a very, very good thing. But from what I understand of Scripture, and what I've even heard from some Christians who have gone through this, at the same time of the heart wrenching grief, there is this residual hope and this residual joy that cohabitates with the grief. It's the difference that Jesus makes. Those who grieve outside of the hope of Christ, it's all grief. But those who grieve with Jesus have so much sadness. And yet the nugget of joy, even then, and that nugget grows as the Lord heals the grieving. The nugget of joy grows and eventually the joy is robust once again. The grief will not last forever. In Christ there is healing and a triumphant return of joy. This is an indestructible joy that can blast through even the greatest pain and loss. Let's move to the next description. Not only is it indestructible joy, it's also possible. What do you mean by possible? Well, I'd like to point to the second sentence. Paul says, I'll say it again. You know, emphasis here rejoice. And you need to know that both times when Paul says rejoice, the verb tense of the Greek verb there is imperative. And imperative simply means it's a command. In other words, Paul, with the authority of God, is commanding all believers, you must have joy. This is not an idea to consider, but a command to obey. And the first implication I'd point to is one that may be a little troubling for you, and that is that if you don't do this, you're in sin. Sin is disobeying God. Not growing in joy is disobedience to the instruction and guidance of Christ, as revealed in this verse and others. And so one thing we know is God's saying, I'm not telling you to consider this, I'm telling you, do it! Be a people of increasing joy. Now, the second thing about this being an imperative is this. God would not command something that we couldn't do. Does that make sense? God would never ask us to do something if in his strength we couldn't do it. And that's the case here. The mere fact that he's saying to all people, everybody, listen to me. If you know Jesus, go for joy. Rejoice. That speaks to us of the possibility of this. There may be some who have lost hope. There may be some of you who have said, you know, I'm never going to be a joyful person. I know there are some. I'm not going to grow in this. That's a lie from the pit of hell. You say, Jeff, there are personality types. There are those who have a genetic disposition to be real sunshiny, happy people. They annoy you, probably. And there are, there are people like you who, you know, you're a little more melancholy disposition. I want to acknowledge those personality differences are very true. And I also want to acknowledge that if you've got a more somber, melancholy personality type... This can be more difficult. It may take more time. It may be a process of spiritual growth that is more robust than others. But it's possible for everybody, no matter what personality bent you have. This growth in joy was not commanded to some, but to all. You say, well, what if I've got clinical depression? What if I'm dealing with, you know, uh, some serious physical ailment here? And I, I want to acknowledge that in some cases, depression is so widespread. And God has graced us with professional help. And I think that can be exactly what he wants to bless some with, whether they be professional counselors to help them figure out what's going on, or even doctors to help them gain chemical balance. Those are graces from God. and God, In some cases of clinical depression, God's solution is both professional help and biblical guidance. But it is still the hope of everybody that through the graces God provides, true joy is available eventually to all. And because the Lord is not just throwing something out there that really is unrealistic, because this is really for the taking, let's go after it. Because you can, that scale of joy can change in your life in the days ahead. Let's go after it together. This joy is not only indestructible, it is possible. And then lastly, it is evident. When you've got it, people see it. I want to point to this third sentence that's really confusing in its context at first. Let your gentleness be evident to all. It's like, Paul, you're kind of going all over the place. You are talking about rejoice. You were double-emphasizing it. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. I had so much fun and was blessed by my study of that word gentleness. Uh, what I discovered was that the word gentleness is apeakes. It's a Greek word, apeakes. And Admittedly, translators really struggled with what's the best way to translate this. It means how you treat people. It means treating them with kindness, gentleness, generosity. But the word they wanted to use, the word that was most accurate, was one that, you know, people didn't understand enough. The word they wanted to use was magnanimous. It's not a word we use a lot. But let your magnanimous spirit be evident to all. What is it mean to be magnanimous? That is somebody who is so enthusiastic about life, so high-hearted that their fullness spills over in their treatment of others. They tend to be so gracious and so good to people and so loving and kind based on their own joy. And all of a sudden, it started to make sense. What Paul is saying is, I want you to rejoice to be a people of joy so much so that you've got a gentleness, a kindness, a love, and a, a generosity that spills out of you, and everyone benefits. That's the goal, is that this joy would not just be about me. You know, Some say, oh, so this pursuit of joy sounds pretty selfish. We just want to feel better. Admittedly, there's a self side of it. We, we are the benefit beneficiaries greatly of greater joy. But also, when we've got more joy, it is evident to those around us and they benefit by our better. When you're down, you tend to treat people less lovingly. When you're filled with joy, it's easier and more natural to be kind and loving to others. And God says, I want this joy to fill your life so that it is evident to everybody. And there's a, you know, the word magnanimous. It has the same root as magnetic. It's attractive. People are drawn to you when you're filled with that joy. I I have a friend of mine who just moved to Wheaton uh, and joined the Compass Church. And To be reunited with this friend on a daily basis has just been an unbelievable joy to me. And it dawned on me, the reason is, one of the reasons, it's his joy. This friend has got a joy and an enthusiasm in life that is magnanimous. I like being around him because he treats me with a love and a kindness, and I am blessed by his vibe, if you know what I mean. And that's how I want to be. I want to be a man who's so filled with joy that my kids benefit and my wife benefits and you all benefit as I live a full life in Jesus. This joy, indestructible, possible, and it's evident. The big question is, how do you get it? Well, we're going to learn about how to get it But the first and basic principle that we must focus on that each week is going to be about how do you get it. But we have to start with this. You get it in the Lord. Remember, let's go back to that first sentence. Rejoice in the Lord always. The key to understanding this supernatural type of joy is recognizing that it differs from circumstantial joy. This is the kind of joy that you find not in the new house or that romance or that vacation or that job. This is a joy you find in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This reason Jesus can say, I'm calling you to this joy. In fact, I'm commanding you to this joy. The reason he can command it is he supplies it. He says, in me you will find this joy. Folks, this phrase, in the Lord, is something very common in Scripture. We are told that when we get saved, when we're reconciled to God through what Christ did on the cross, we are in Christ. There is this connection that we have in him. And when we're connected in him, oh my, things change. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. You say what does that mean? It means we're forgiven. That those sins, that guilt, that shame that we are so disgusted by as we look into our past. It's gone. <laughs> the forgiveness in Jesus is remarkable as he washes it away. You know, he died on the cross to pay the penalty for that sin, and as a consequence, those who are his find their slate made clean. And in his eyes, which are really the only eyes that ultimately matter, we are forgiven people. Now, if you understand that, that'll bring a smile to your face. The forgiveness that's found in Christ is reason to sing, and rejoice for a long, long time. When you're in Christ, not only are we forgiven, we're adopted. God says our connection is so tight that it's not just that our differences are reconciled. You're not just okay with me. God says, you become my child. I bring you into my family. Christians, when we understand who we are, we realize that we have fundamentally shifted from being a nobody to being a daughter and son of the king of the universe. That God looks at you and says, we got something going, don't we? And we say, yeah, God, we got something going. I call you Abba. And you call me son, daughter. And folks, when you bask in your treasured status as the Lord's child, it just fills the heart with joy. We must lean into our in the Lord status and rejoice in him and what we have in him. One more part of this verse I want to point to about our joy. Uh, This joy has to do with the nearness of God. The Lord is near. Now, at first, one could say that's a meaningless statement. The Lord is omnipresent. The Lord is everywhere. So to say he's near, I mean, you're just... The key to this reference to his nearness is not saying he's omnipresent. It's pointing to his accessibility. You know, sometimes we say the Lord feels a thousand miles away. What are we saying in that statement? We're saying we feel like we can't connect with him. Well, when the Bible says, actually, I am near, It's saying that God can be experienced. God can be encountered. And that experience of the nearness of God is central to this joy. It's it's not just saying, theoretically, I know I'm in Christ. It's saying, experientially, I feel the nearness of my Abba Father. Have you felt the nearness of God and the joy in that nearness? Have you ever been like really lonely and in that moment just said, God, no one is with me. I need you with me and had an epiphany, a realization that the Lord was going to accompany you that evening and found his company to be delightful. Some of you like never felt that. Well, look for it. Pray for it. Press in pursuit of it. Because the, 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 the fellowship of God, the, the sharing of an evening, of an hour, of ten minutes with the Lord, is sweet beyond description. Have you ever felt the love of God? Have you ever felt, not only, Lord, do I know that you're with me, but I know you're looking at me. And I know you got that look in your eye. I know you got that grin on your face. I know, as the Bible says, your face is shining on me right now. Lord, why you are like all goo-goo about me, I have no idea, but I'll take it. I love it. Those who connect with the love of God shining on them find a joy the world does not know. Have you ever felt the nearness of God expressed in his voice, the whisper of God? You say, oh man, now you're getting weird. You you people are like hearing voices. Yep. Every once in a while, there is this sense that a thought is on my mind. And I'm like, Lord, did I come up with that thought or did you place that thought in my mind? And the more you think about it, the more convinced you get. You know, I think you may have given me that thought. You did give me that thought, didn't you? God, you want me to be reminded of this. And then you remind it again. And he puts another thought on your mind, another thought. And the next thing you know, you're growing in your capacity to recognize the voice of God. And when you realize God is speaking to me, the king of the universe is taking the time to articulate words of instruction or encouragement or inspiration to me there is a joy in that like none other. Folks, this experience of the nearness, the activity of God is absolutely wonderful. The truth of these passages is that this remarkable joy is available for the taking, but it is found in relationship and experience with the Lord. And my experience has been that the greatest joy in the world is that joy in the friendship with God? Just just this morning I was, right, I'll confess, at McDonald's having a, a sausage burrito. Price went up 19 cents, by the way. Really bugged me. As I left McDonald's, I paused in the parking lot and looked at the beauty of the sunrise. It was just a glorious morning. The air, a little crisp and like a strange person i stood for a moment in the parking lot and i just said god boy i feel your reality this morning i sense the anticipation of what you want to do at the compass church today i love doing life with you god i love doing life with you the thought of doing it without you makes me sick thank you and and i was filled with joy in that moment Joy in the burrito? Some. Joy mostly in God. Folks, the greatest joy, the supernatural joy, is found in the prioritization and pursuit of deep friendship with the God of the universe. My wife and I learned that in a very profound way of all times on our honeymoon. Jen and I were married 22 years ago, and as our wedding approached, my dad asked me, so, son, what are your plans for the honeymoon, you know? And I'm like, dad, uh, I was a youth pastor at the time, so I was making peanuts. I didn't have any money. And I said, I hear that uh, Detroit's real nice this time of the year, you know? So maybe I'm... <laughs> and he said, your mother and I have been talking, and we know you guys are broke, and so we'd like to give you a wedding present of a hotel stay in Hawaii, <laughs> that beats Detroit. Yes, let's do that. And uh, my dad got us uh, a place at the Hyatt in Maui. I want to show you a picture of the restaurant that Jen and I dined at. Look at this setting. I mean, sunset over the palm trees, water. I mean, it was, it was. It was so beautiful. It was the most luxurious hotel I had ever seen in my whole life. And then I had never been to Hawaii. The beaches of Hawaii, if you've ever been there. I mean, it is beauty beyond what one can imagine. Jen and I, on the fourth day of our honeymoon, had a very awkward conversation. My wife asked me, how are you doing? Good. Why? She said, no, no, no. How are you doing, really? And I said, okay. You ask, I go, Ten, I don't know why I'm not more happy. I said to her, everything is picture perfect. I have the most beautiful, wonderful wife in the world. I am at the most luxurious hotel I've ever seen in my life. I am at the most beautiful location imaginable. The circumstances of my life are perfect. Why am I not more happy? And I said, don't take offense. You know, it has nothing to do with you. And she's like, well, don't take offense because I feel the same way. <laughs> she goes, I've been thinking the same thing. Why, what is, ah, there's, this is. And she said, you know what I think it may be? I think it may be that we're not very close to the Lord right now. And she said, you know, the... Days before our wedding, we crazy busy. We were getting ready with all of this planning and all these things that had to be done. And then people from out of town are coming in. And we were so busy. She said, I haven't had time with God in weeks. And we've gone on this honeymoon. We've been sightseeing. And we just, she said, have you had much time with God? And I said, zero. She said, I think the problem is we're getting everything else in life that's great into our focus to the exclusion of him. And we did something really weird, for a honeymoon at least. Jen and I decided that she would take her Bible and start walking that way on the beach, and I would take my Bible and start walking the other way, and we'd give each other an hour alone with God. And as I did that, the clarity started to return to my soul's eyes once again. As I turned to God and said, oh my Lord, I have neglected you, ignored you for the last month. I repent. Here you have graced me and given me so many good things. And how did I respond? By forgetting you? What's up with that? And as I spoke with him and as I heard from him through his word, the return of the Familiar yet forgotten experience of his companionship was brought back to me. And the sound of his voice was like a song to my soul. And the shine of his love and the celebration of what he has made. I was still rejoicing in the glory of the place, but now giving praise to the artist and not the art. And I said, God, I'm sorry. You are my greatest love. Jen is my second. And I said, I will never make this mistake again. You have taught, Jen and I walked away and the greatest part of our honeymoon was the realization of that lesson that our joy is found in Christ and not the things of this world. As she walked back to me on the beach, I saw that look in her eye that I had not seen in a while. I saw that glow on her face of a heart that's full because of her connection to her maker. And uh, I know it to be true, not just because the word says it. I know it to be true from my own experience. The best this world has to offer falls short of the Lord himself. Your soul longs for joy. I know it. Mine does too. And the joy our heart craves is found in friendship, with God and nowhere else. Do you believe that? If you believe that, in some cases, why are we still buying the lie that if I only had, the, if I only lost twenty pounds, if I only went on that vacation, if I only had that job, if my house were fixed, or that's not where the answer is. The answer is in the One who made us, and He made us to find the answer in Him. And so it dawns on me that there may be some, maybe you're a visitor, you've only been coming to the Compass Church for a while, or maybe a long time, but you've never crossed the line into a relationship with God. The Bible teaches that you need to have a moment where you make a decision that, Lord, I want to give my life to you. I've been given my life to the pursuit of joy in a thousand other ways, but I've never turned to you and said, you're my only hope. The Bible describes a moment of decision when you say, Jesus, I need you to forgive my sins. Please wash away my sin. Apply what you did on the cross to my life and make me clean. The Bible talks about that moment being one where you say, not only, Jesus, do I want you to be my forgiver, I want you to be my leader. Take my life. I've been my own guide. I want you to be my official guide. I want to follow you the rest of my days. And the Bible says that in that moment what's called faith. We are reconciled to God miraculously, supernaturally. And I'd like to provide opportunity for that moment right now. I'm going to close in prayer, and I would invite you to have your moment of reconciliation with God through prayer. You don't need to pray out loud. You can pray silently as I pray. Unless you not realize that I will remind you that God is listening to your silent cry of your heart with an interest that would be stunning if you saw it, but there is nothing God longs for more than people to turn from their empty pursuits and come to him. Well, want to come to him let's pray God We have chased fulfillment and joy in a thousand ways, and they have proved to be fleeting and temporary moments. We want, Lord, so bad to find that joy indestructible, to find that joy that permeates the life and is evident to all. And God, I think it may be in you. And so we are looking to you right now. Jesus Take our empty, broken lives. Please take us. Wash us clean and lead us forward. Adopt us into your family and whisper of our new acceptance in the Father's eyes. This is our moment. We're crying out to you. Let us come home, back to the one we were made for, the only true source of joy.